I don't want to take away from anything that Mark said because that was awesome. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture to go to when it comes to uh, communion time. But I just uh, came to an understanding of how smart the men of our church are. That when he said, uh, don't believe anything a woman says, I only heard women giggle. And men didn't say a thing. (laughs) Smartest crowd of men on the planet right there. Again, good morning. We're glad that you're here uh, this morning. Uh, in our Bible, uh, as you know, it's one story, or one book, but it, we've divided into two sections, right? They're called the Old and New what? Testaments, right? And uh, Testaments, anybody know what the word Testament means? It's covenant, right? It's a covenant. So we have the Old Covenant and we have the, the New Covenant. So we have this one story of who God is, this one story, this book about who God is and the creation all the way to Jesus coming back again. And uh, it's divided into these two sections, this Old Covenant and this New Covenant. And uh, so we want to dive in today about what this whole idea of a covenant is, uh, why this covenant was made, what the covenants are, um, and just try to understand more about who God is as we as we wander through this. And if you remember, we started out with uh, creation, and God created the heavens and the earth, and he created us in his image. So we have this identity in that uh, we were created in the image of a holy God. And then we had the fall that James did an awesome job uh, last Sunday of uh, walking through the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And so with the fall, with sin coming into the world, there became this problem. Uh, God created this perfect world in which he was communing with, he was walking in the cool of the day, uh, we, it would imply when we read Genesis chapter 3, uh, with his creation, he was walking with his creation as a perfect God and perfect people in this perfect land, and then sin came into the world and suddenly things aren't perfect anymore. And God said, we're not going to let him eat from the tree of life and undo all of this. Now death is going to have to come into the world. And so now there's this problem in that God wants to be with us, his creation for all of eternity, but he's perfect, and now with sin in the world, we are not. And so there has to be some kind of solution if God wants to be with us in eternity with all these imperfect people of which, sorry, but we are. And so God's solution to all of this is that he was going to make covenants. He was going to make promises with his creation. If you do this, then I will do this. So I want to talk real quick about some covenants and exactly what that is. A covenant basically uh, is a promise or maybe a contract. Uh, let me. These are some of my favorite uh, sports contracts ever that were signed. Um, this is uh, Glenn Big Baby Davis, the guy that's wearing number 11, not the guy that's on his back. Uh, Glenn Big Baby Davis received a bonus of $500,000 of every year of his contract that he stayed under 310 pounds. How many of you would like that kind of contract? Yeah. <clears throat> this is Charlie Kerfeld. Uh, Charlie Kerfeld, in 1987, the Astros approached him and said, we want you to be on our pitching staff. And uh, he said, and this shows you that this is the 80s by this number, um, that he asked for $110,037.37 because his number was 37. And he also asked for 37 boxes of orange jello. There you go. They're not as funny to you as they were to me. All right. In 2005, the Astros, Houston Astros, made it to the World Series, and they're coming up on all-important Game 6 of the World Series. And Roy Oswalt was one of their uh, key pitchers. And the Astros owner, Drayton McLean, he wanted to further incentivize... um, uh, they want to incentivize Roy Oswalt, Oswalt for that game. So he said, if you win, I'm going to buy you an all-purpose tractor, a bulldozer. So he won the game and he got a bulldozer. All right, I'm going to get through these fast because you guys obviously didn't think they're as funny as I did. All right. And uh, July 1st, you may not know this, but July 1st is actually Bobby Bonilla Day. Did you know that? 
um, in, uh, in early, let's see, I forget what year it was, but Bobby Bonilla was owed by the New York Mets $5.9 million, and they didn't want to pay him. They're like letting him go, releasing him. And so they decided to defer his salary so that they could use it for other players. And they said on July 1st in 2011, we're going to start paying you that salary plus interest. Um, And so what it came out to is that for 25 years, starting in 2011 on July 1st, Bobby Bonilla receives a check from the New York Mets for $1,193,248.20 for a grand total of nearly $30 million because they wanted to avoid paying him $5.9 million. There you go. That's how smart we are as a, as a human race. Anyway, so, uh, so there's some kind of crazy contracts that are out there, crazy agreements that people make, and some that just sound funny and sound a little ridiculous. And I would contend that some of the covenants that God made may sound a little bit like, why, where, where did that come from, or why would he make that, that covenant? And in the grand scheme of things, we'd have to look at it and say, why would God make a promise to you and I, sinners, to be with us for all of eternity? What in the world would he want to do that for? And the simple answer I can give you is, going back to my first sermon in January of 2015, God loves you. God loves you. He loves us so much that he would make covenants with us to say, I want to be with you for all of eternity. So let's look at some of these covenants that God made. Genesis chapter 2. It says, before Abram, which is the the one we'll get to here in a second, um, the the one that we'll talk about the most, but Genesis chapter 2 says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He made a covenant for man right from the get-go and said, Here's the garden, the land, work it, live in it, exist in it, enjoy it, but you can't eat of this one or you'll die. That's a covenant that he made, a promise that he made. He's like, if you, you can have all this, it's all yours, but if you do this one thing, you'll surely die. Genesis chapter 3, um, after Adam and Eve sinned, and they took the fruit, they ate of it, and God put a curse on the serpent, he put a curse on the woman, and he put a curse on the man. And on the man, he said this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you know what, there's a theme there today, isn't there? <laughs> because you've listened to the voice of your wife, I didn't say that, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, listen to this, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what we experienced in that passage is that Adam realized what happens when he broke the covenant... Don't eat of that tree. He ate of the tree. Here's what's going to happen to you now. And now here's another covenant. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. Death has come into the world. Genesis chapter 4. The Lord said to Cain, so Adam and Eve had two sons. Their names were Cain and Abel, right? And uh, Cain and Abel, Abel, they brought offerings. Abel's was accepted. Cain's was rejected. And Cain was upset about that. And God said to Cain as he was Wrestling through all of this jealousy of his brother, he said, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We have this covenant from God that says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you do well, you'll be accepted. That's a covenant promise that God makes to us. Genesis chapter 4, And now you are cursed from the ground... 
Um, this is when uh, Cain went ahead and killed his brother Abel. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so we had this covenant that was broken between God and Cain. And he said, if you do well, won't it go well for you? He didn't do well. And because of that, he now is going to have to wrestle, just like the curse that was put on Adam. You're going to have to wrestle with the ground now, and you're going to be banished. Genesis uh, chapter 8, this is after um, the flood, and uh, God had brought Noah and his sons and their families out from the ark. Genesis chapter 8, when the Lord uh, smelled the pleasing aroma, so a sacrifice was offered to God, um, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. In Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In Genesis chapter 9 again, God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. We know this one, right? I've set my bow or my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh when the bow is in the clouds. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. So God, even up to the covenant we're going to talk about today, which is probably the biggest covenant we think about when we think about God's covenant with his people, he had all these other promises that he made up to that point. This is a God who makes promises, makes covenants with his creation. If you'll do this, then this is what I will do. But we also see the consequences. What happens when we break a covenant with God, it doesn't go well. So fast forward now to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, we're going to look at the story of this guy named Abram, whose name will be changed to Abraham. And so I'm probably going to mix it up and say Abram and Abraham, Abraham and Abram, but you get the idea, they're all the same guy, okay? Um, so Genesis chapter 12, first three verses read this way. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The call of Abram was very clear, yet it was also vague. <laughs> it was very clear, yet at the same time it was vague. And this is what I mean by that. If you go back to that promise at the very beginning, verse 1, God said, I'm going to take you out of your land. I want you to pack up everything that you have, all the family that you have. I want you to leave your father's home. Leave your father's land. And I'm going to take you somewhere else. The clear part was, get up and go. This is a calling that God has put on your heart, Abram, that you are supposed to leave the place where you are. The vague part is what? I'm not telling you where you're going, right? <laughs> I'm going to take you someplace else. Uh, I'm going to take you to a distant land in a place that you're even going to be an alien in. And so it was very clear that Abram's like, okay, this is on my heart. God's saying we've got to move, we've got to leave, but where are we going? We're just going to have to trust where God follows. 
It's kind of interesting because if we go to a commandment or a commission or to a new covenant thing, Jesus told us to do what in Matthew chapter 28? He said to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I commanded them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, I'll be with you. He says, as you go. He doesn't say, hey, when you go to work specifically, that's where you're supposed to make disciples. When you go home today, that's where you're supposed to make disciples. When you go in your neighborhood, three doors down on either side, that's where you're supposed to. Now, that would be nice, clear direction, wouldn't it? That would help it, help it out a little bit. But no, the clear part is, go make disciples. The vague part is, we're just going to have to trust where God leads us. And that's what Abram was faced with. Pick up all your stuff, leave and go. Now, Abram was not a young man at this time. Nevertheless, when he finally did have a child, and so he's picking up, and he's like, all right, and he's got his nephew Lot because his brother had died, and so he's got Lot with him as well, and they venture off to this new place. Genesis 12, verse 4, So Abram went, and the Lord had told him, uh, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody, or maybe I do, but how many of you are 75 or older in the crowd? Is that okay to ask that question? All right. How many of you 75-year-olds are thinking, you know, I think kids are in our future? None? <laughs> well, I don't understand that. Okay. So what's the covenant that God made with Abram? It's like, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abram's like, okay, I'll go, but he's 75 years old. And his wife, as we'll find out, is about 10 years younger, so 65 years old. He's like, you're going to be made in a great nation. I don't know what's going through Abram's head. I don't know if he's thinking to myself, well, I guess that's why I'm taking a lot with me. I don't know if somehow, I just don't know what's going to take place. But that's how great Abram's faith was. That God would say, go, and he'd say, okay. He didn't stop to think, wait a second, let's do the math here. All right, Lord, she's 65, I'm 75. I know a little bit about biology. That's not going to work. You know, maybe you need to find somebody else. Maybe I can help. Some, maybe I'll be a mentor to somebody else. Maybe Lot's the guy. No, the Bible doesn't tell us any of that. He just says, he said, okay. He just picked up and said, I'm going. It's very clear. Yes, a little bit vague, but it was very clear that God said, go. And Abraham said, okay. There's another passage of scripture that talks about what happened in Genesis, um, in this call of Abraham. And it's actually in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. And if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to spend a little bit of time there as well. In Hebrews 11, uh, we kind of call it the Faith Hall of Fame, or it lists all these people of faith and the things that they did in the Old Testament. And Abram's uh, listed among them. But in Hebrews chapter 11, um, verses 8 and 9, it says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, but faith, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So while Abram's call was clear, yet vague, his response was absolutely faith. Abram's response was absolutely faith. And again, we can pause right here and we could probably call it quits right here if we wanted to because there's great conviction we won't because i'm a preacher and I, you know they give me 30 minutes that's what they pay me for so i gotta keep going right but you and i know that god puts callings on our life going to all the world to make disciples that's a calling put on our life turn the other cheek someone asks you to go one mile go a second one 
Matthew 25, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. We know that God has put a calling on our life. And while some of it is clear, the where to go do it is often vague. And you and I have a choice to make. Are we going to respond by saying, ah, I think he's talking to somebody else. Or maybe we're going to look at the person on our right and our left and say, you know, you ought to pay attention to what Andy's saying here and do some of these things. Or maybe we're going to look in the mirror and say, what is God calling me to do this day? But Abraham responded in faith. He said, I'll go. So Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, all right, so uh, God had uh, said, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham's like, God, you keep telling me that, but I don't have any kids. And so God finally did give him a child, and his name was? Isaac, right? Um, he gave him a child named Isaac, and he was 100 years old, and his wife was 90 years old, and they had this child. And again, I'm just trying to picture that in my head, right? I mean, you all that are 75, 80 years old, you're probably thinking, what would that look like if we raised an infant right this second, right? Um, and so at 100 years old, he has a baby. 90 years old, his wife is. She gives birth to this child. And so Abram is finally seeing. And can you imagine that day when that child came into the world, or even that day they, they, uh, that uh, Sarah found out that she was pregnant, just the feeling of elation that they had, right? Now, how many, I mean, you've had a prayer answered before, right? You ever had a prayer answered right in front of your face, and you're like, okay, that was cool, right? I mean, you've, you've, have you experienced that? You like prayed to God, and then like maybe a week, maybe a day, maybe that minute, maybe a month, maybe a year later, God answers it with a yes, and you're like, whoa, that was awfully cool. And then you start thinking about the lotto but you don't, right? Um, and so then you, and you, imagine Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to make you a great nation, pick up everything and leave. Okay, Lord, not sure how this is going to work, but okay. And they go to a distant land, living in tents, still no kids. And then suddenly God gives them a kid when it's a miracle. I mean, short of the virgin birth, Probably one of the most miraculous things that ever happened that a 90-year-old woman, after the flood anyway, would give birth to a child. And the elation they must have been feeling. Well, then we go to Genesis chapter 22, and you know where I'm going with this, right? After these things, God tested Abraham, and what did he say? Abraham, here I am, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The elation he much, must have been feeling when Isaac came into the world. And now, now he may have been a teenager at this point, so maybe he was agreeing to it because he had a teenage boy in the house at the time. But I'm guessing that when God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him, that Abraham had to be saying, wait a second, what? Are you kidding me? For a hundred years we've waited for this. My wife was barren. We didn't think this was going to happen. Now you've delivered in a miraculous way and now you're telling me to give him back to you? I know that that's the conversation, the argument that I would be having with God, isn't it? But Abraham, it says, rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells it this way, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God, listen to this, was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, Abraham's faith 
matured as it was tested. His faith matured as it was tested. This wasn't the first test that Abraham had been given in his journey to go to this foreign place. It was tested first with, hey, pick up everything you go and, uh, you know, you have and go to this land that I'm not going to tell you where it is and you're going to go place to place. I'm going to make you a great nation even though you don't have any kids. And so he's testing him in that. He tested him times where Abraham, quite frankly, sinned in lying about his wife Sarah so that he could keep her. It's another sermon for another day. He was tested often and this had to be the ultimate, the biggest test that Abraham had to face. And how did he respond? Okay, Lord. And why did he respond that way? Because his faith was so great, he figured that even if he sacrificed his son Isaac, that God would give him right back to him. And that's some faith, isn't it? James 1, 3 and 4 says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When our faith is tested, we mature. When our faith is tested, we mature. As we follow God, as we continue to say, yes, Lord, okay, Lord, wherever you want to lead me, okay, we've got this, I'm right there with you, I know you're with me. As we continue to do that, listen to his voice and follow him and not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that's when we'll understand God's perfect will. As we continue walking in that way, our faith matures. Hebrews 11.10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking ahead. He was looking forward. Even though in the Old Testament it doesn't talk about heaven a whole lot, a lot of times it's alluded to by David in the Psalms, but it's never really directly talking, talked about. But Abram had his eyes focused on this greater place, this place where he would get to walk with God. Hebrews 11.13 says, These all died, so he gave this list of all these great heroes of the faith. It says, They all died, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In verse 16 it says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. A few verses down, he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. We talked about that, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In verses 39 and 40 say, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So all these people of faith, all of these people of faith, that trusted God, that said yes to God, and whatever His command, whatever His call on their heart was, none of them experienced here on earth all that God had promised. Why? Because the promise is fulfilled in eternity. And that's what they were looking forward to. And they still are to this day. And they realize that it won't be perfect until we are there with them. God's covenant will be filled in eternity. His covenant will be fulfilled in eternity. So then we go forward to this new covenant. So we have this old covenant with Abram. This old covenant with Abram was, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through him, who's going to be blessed? All nations. His covenant with Abraham continues to play out today. You and I are of a different nation, yet we are experiencing God's blessings. Why? Because God keeps his promises like he did with Abraham. Well, we go to the New Testament real quickly. 
And we go jump to the New Testament in this new covenant that was made. Because in the old covenant, the covenants that God was making with his people, this realization came that the people were realizing, we can't do this on our own. There aren't enough animals to sacrifice. We keep sinning over and over. This, this can't be the way in which we reconcile with our holy God through this covenant because we can't keep our part of it. And I think God chose this people in the Old Testament to go through this so that we might understand also and realize that we can't do it on our own. In Hebrews 9, talking about Jesus, it says, Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In Luke chapter 22, as uh, we just took communion together a few minutes ago, it says, Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, Jesus said, This cup that is poured out for you is my new covenant in my blood. And of course, John 3.16, we all know that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. See, we're under this new covenant now. Because the old covenant, we couldn't do it. We were feeble, weak human beings that we couldn't handle this old covenant. And so God said, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. And the new covenant is simply this. There's only one way to reconcile yourself with God, and it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The conditions of the contract are to believe and live. And the question is pretty simple. Will you sign on the line? (laughs) Will you sign on the line? I know many of you are here today, if not, probably... 98% of you have already signed on the line and said, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And the challenge to those of us that have done this is that God is still testing our faith today so that we might become perfect as Jesus is perfect. And He continues to challenge us and charge us to go into all the world and let other people know this information. And since you've now signed on the line to say, I choose Jesus, are you now ready to wake up every morning and say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do today? What is it that you want me to do today that will increase your kingdom, that will glorify and honor you, our God? Then there's a few of you here today that uh, you may never have signed on the line, never have said to Jesus that I surrender to you, that I want you, that I want to be with you for all of eternity. And I'm here to tell you that he's sliding the paper across the table today saying, I'm ready to receive you. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, there will be testing of your faith. Look at Abraham's life. He had to mature in some pretty tough ways. But he's ready to receive you now. This kind of treaty was called a a suzerainty treaty. I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly. Uh, It's an agreement between a superior party and a lesser one. And so they found some of these treaties, some of these documents... Um, as they've uncovered, archaeologists have uh, uncovered this. And basically, there's six parts to this treaty. Um, one is there's identity uh, of the suzerain. All right, so there's the identity of who's the one that's superior and who's the vassal, right? Who's the one that's lesser than um, in socioeconomic status. Secondly, there's a history of the relationship of the parties involved. So there's a history between, okay, this uh, superior person and this vassal. What's the relationship and what's the history of it? Third is that there's an obligation placed on the vassal. There's an obligation placed on the servant. Um, Then they deposit the papers in the temples of the gods, right? Little G gods. And then there were divine witnesses. So as they placed those in there, uh, they would call out to their gods, whatever it may have been, of people that weren't, of course, Israelites. 
And then there was a list of blessings if you followed and curses if you didn't. In fact, there's a um, place in Genesis chapter 15, and somebody asked me this on my morning dive um, a couple of weeks ago. They said, why in Genesis 15, when Abraham laid this, um, uh, this sacrifice out, that this torch and this lamp came between the two parts of the animal? And basically what that is in a suzerain uh, treaty is that um, the, the, pers- the people would walk together between the halves of the sacrifice to indicate if you come through with your covenant, blessings will come, but if you don't, you're going to end up like this animal. <laughs> That's pretty rough, isn't it? As we consider the covenant that God made with us, and we looked at some ridiculous ones early on, the most ridiculous covenant that was ever made, I think, in the history of all mankind, is God saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you sinners because I want to be with you for all of eternity. And here's the covenant that I'm making with you ultimately, and it's this. I'm going to send my only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins so you don't have to pay for them anymore. I think that's the most ridiculous covenant ever offered. But praise God, he loves us enough to offer it to us. And he knows the history of us. He knows the relationship with us. And he knows his superior uh, where his status is and where our status is, yet he still extends this contract, this covenant to us and says, listen, I want to be your God for all of eternity. Will you simply say yes and surrender your life to Jesus? And again, for those of us here that have said yes to that already, the work doesn't stop. The calling on our hearts continues. And again, will we say yes? Let's pray. Father, you're an awesome God, and we can't thank you enough for wanting to be with us for all of eternity because we realize we don't deserve it. In fact, if there's anything we don't deserve, it's to be in your company and in your presence because of any one sin we've committed. But Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, and yes, for your justice as well, that you would extend to us a covenant and say, here it is. I want to be with you for all of eternity. I sent my son to die for you so that his blood poured out, paid the price. And so now all we have to do is accept. So Father, I pray for those here today especially that have never accepted that today might be the day. For those of us that have accepted that, Lord, I pray that it would be serve as a reminder of what we're living and looking forward to just as Abraham did. But Father, I also pray that it's a challenge to us to realize that You're still calling on us to live in this life and to work in this life, to challenge our faith, to test our faith so that we might grow to be perfect as you are perfect. So Father, strengthen our resolve, strengthen us to know what the calling on our heart is. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.